This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. Mortgage commercials are rarely exciting. So to make it slightly more interesting, here are my nieces to do it for me. So interest rates continue to drop like my sister's baby teeth. Come on, Uncle Ryan had to say the same thing last year. That's true. Last year, it was rates are boring talk historically low. And now this year, there's somehow even more boring talk historically lower than the previous boring talk historically low. Sounds boring. But for so many listeners who just haven't wanted to deal with it, refinancing right now could save you massive amounts of Lego sets. Rates have gotten that low. Some borrowers could potentially save hundreds monthly and tens and tens of thousands over the life of a loan. And if you didn't put 20% down before, some could even stop having to pay PMI. Give Uncle Ryan a shot. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed Mortgage Banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages William McRae presented answering the question, Who is God? at Moody Keswick Bible Conference, 1980. Dr. William McRae was a teacher, pastor, seminary professor, and president of what is now known as Tyndale University and Theological Seminary. Now, here is William McRae on Today in the Word Radio. A God who is God. That's our theme for the week. And one of the things that we've wanted to do is to just appreciate the kind of God that we really have so that our personal lives can be enriched and reflect the fact that we are children of that kind of God, a God who is really God. I think of all the character cameos in the Bible, um, one that perhaps fascinates me more than others and uh, that certainly attracts me tremendously and that I find very intriguing is the kind of person that we would probably call the overcomer. This is the man or the woman who, uh, in the midst of, of the struggles and the conflicts of life, stands tall and they walk straight and they speak strong. There are people who are not overwhelmed by their problems, people who don't get swept away by their struggles. They're people who stand strong. They're people who, who are overcomers. They're, they're people who are sort of head and shoulders above the rest of the crowd. And you come across them in life. And when you come across them in life, you, you, you wonder what it is that really has made them what they are and how they've ever stood so straight and how they've ever been so joyful and, and been such an overcomer. You're, you're always trying to... Uh, Find out what their secret is. What's down underneath? How do you explain that man or that woman who, in those kinds of circumstances, is so joyful and and so triumphant and so victorious? It's the overcomer. What a marvelous person they are when you come across them in life. And they are that kind of person when you come across them in the scriptures, too. And this morning and tomorrow morning, in our last two mornings together, we're going to visit one of those overcomers. And what we're going to want to do is to put our spiritual stethoscope upon their spiritual heart and see if we can find out what makes them tick. 
What made this person the kind of person he was so that uh, he survived, and not just survived, but triumphantly survived in his circumstances? The man that we want to look at, of course, was David. And among many of the people in the Bible, David surely has got to be acknowledged as one of the great overcomers of the circumstances in his life. When we turn to Psalm 139, we're coming to a psalm that David writes out of the background of some of the trials and problems of his life. Let me ask you to turn in your Bible to this marvelous psalm, Psalm 139. While we can't be dogmatic about the circumstances in which it was written, most Bible students suggest, at least, that it was written during the period of time when Israel was under the domination of the Philistines. Now that in and of itself was a task and a, ta- a test and a challenge that was quite sufficient. It was enough to wipe out most people who had a faith in God and who had a commitment to serve God. David's circumstances were aggravated by the fact that not only was his people under the domination of the Philistines, but he was under the domination of Saul. It was written at a time when, uh, when Saul was giving David terrible problems in his life. And Saul was overwhelmed with jealousy. Uh, here was a young fellow coming up who was uh, threatening his throne. Uh, it was evident that God's hand was upon David. And he had been anointed for the uh, kingship of Israel. And Saul was the king. And he looked down upon this young fellow and uh, overwhelmed with envy and jealousy. uh, There was tremendous hostility. You know the story how Saul tried to eliminate the competition. And he went after David and hunted him like an animal. And his intention was to kill him. He wanted to, uh, to eliminate the competition. And in the midst of those circumstances, apparently, David writes Psalm 139, which helps us to understand how he overcame in those circumstances of his life. And the explanation is that he had a God who was God. And in this particular psalm, he focuses upon two of the characteristics of his God that set his God apart from the gods of the Philistines, apart from the gods of all of the other pagan nations around him. His God was outstanding because of these two incredibly incomparable attributes. In verses 1 through 6, he puts the focus upon one of those characteristics. It's the one we want to study this morning. In verses 7 through 12, He puts the focus upon the second of those characteristics. And that's the one we want to study tomorrow morning. And then in verses 13 down through the next part of the chapter into verse 18, he he explains how he knows and why he knows God is like this and God is like that. That stanza gives us his rationale, his evidence for, for knowing that God is like the kind of God that he has described. And then in the last part of the chapter, in verses 19 through 24, he applies it all to himself and internalizes it and relates it to himself in his own life. As you've already guessed then, Psalm 139 is a hymn. It's a, it's a psalm. It's a song. And it has four stanzas to it. Each stanza has six verses. Stanza number one talks about 
the knowledge of God. Stanza number two talks about the presence of God. Stanza number three explains how David knows that God is a God who knows and that God is a God who is with him. In stanza number four, internalizes it and applies it to himself in his own life. This morning, our focus then is going to be upon stanza number one. And uh, this is a stanza in which uh, David uh, focuses upon the kind of knowledge that his God has, in contrast to the limited knowledge that all of the other gods have, and in contrast to the limited knowledge that he has as a mere man. Psalm 139, verse 1, begins with uh, an expression concerning the nature of God's knowledge. The character of God's knowledge, then, is expressed in verse 1. The psalmist says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Now, when David says, thou hast searched me, he uses a very dramatic verb. He uses a verb that means, uh, you have searched me out diligently. You have probed me through and through. It's the kind of verb that um, a geologist would use uh, when he would go to a certain part of the country and try to search out to see if there's oil in that part of the country. Or the kind of verb that a miner would use. Uh, if he was going down underground to try to determine whether, whether there was any gold or a streaker gold here. Uh, it's the kind of verb that a spy would use if a spy was uh, sent undercover into a foreign country in the midst of a military situation in order to uh, probe and to discover and to move things aside and get underneath and to find out what some of the secrets are that the home country needs back there. That's the kind of verb that's used here. And uh, what David says is, God, that's what you've done with me. You've searched me out. With a penetrating gaze, you have probed, you've penetrated, you've seen me through and through, you've seen right underneath, you've searched me out, and as a result, you know me. The character of God's love is expressed in verse 1. God knows me, and he knows me because he has searched me out with his penetrating, searching gaze. Now, when you come to verses 2 through 5, the character of God's knowledge is explained. For example, in 2a, he says, Thou hast known when I sit down and when I rise up. That's polarization. He takes two kinds of situations, sitting down and rising up. And in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, that kind of polarization is used to convey sort of universality. And what the psalmist is really saying there is, Lord, you know all of my activities. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up. Those polarized activities are intended to convey, you know all of my activities, you know, all of the activities in which I'm engaged. That's an important thing for me to understand. God knows every activity 
in which you and I ever engage. When you come to verse 2b, it tells us that he knows all of our ambitions. Thou hast understood my thought from afar. And the word that he uses there for thought is the idea of discerning my thoughts. You discern my thoughts. You set my thoughts apart. You separate my thoughts. You sort my thoughts out. You know the ambitions of my heart. And you know them from afar. That seems to convey the idea before they ever take place, before they ever are in place, before they are ever active in my life, you know them. You know them before I even know them. You know all of the ambitions, Lord, every one of my ambitions, and you know them even before I know them. When you come into the first part of verse 3, he says, you know, every place I go, thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down. Again, you've got the polarization, which suggests the universalization of God's knowledge. You know, uh, you have scrutinized my path which suggests my walking out and my moving, and my lying down when I am at home and I go to bed. You know all the places that I go. There is not ever a possibility that I would ever go to one single place or be in any one particular spot without you knowing that. You know all the places that I go. When you come to the last part of verse 3, You know all of the patterns of my life, he says. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Verse 4, you know all my words. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it. You know every word that I speak. And as a matter of fact, You know it, Lord, even before I speak it. Verse 5, you are involved in every area of my life. The psalmist says, thou hast enclosed me behind and before, and you have laid your hand upon me. Every area of my life is known to you. So in verses 2 through 5, then, the character of God's love is explained. Now, I ask you, friend, is there any aspect of your life that is not covered in verses 2 through 5? And see, and the answer to it is not one single aspect. He knows everything that goes on inside here. He knows everything that comes out here. He knows everything that goes on with my hands. He knows every place that my feet goes. There is not one single thing about you that God does not know. He knows all of your ambitions. He knows all of your wishes. He knows all of your thoughts. He knows all of your intentions. He knows all of your words. He knows all of your actions. He knows everywhere you go. There is not one single thing about you that he does not know. That is the character of his love as it's explained. Now when you come to verse 6, you come to the climax where the character of God's knowledge is extolled. And the psalmist responds to that probably just the way you and I are responding to it this morning. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Such knowledge is too awesome. The idea is that it's incomprehensible. I could never even comprehend, God, that you have that kind of knowledge. 
And then he concludes by saying, it's too high. I can't attain to it. I can't overcome it. And the Hebrew image that's involved in that last line is that it's sort of like an impregnable rock. And I could never break through it. I could never overcome it. I could never reach that kind of height. And what the psalmist has done then in the first six verses is give us a little glimpse of the kind of knowledge that our God has. In our theological textbooks, it's called the omniscience of God. And that literally simply means the all-knowingness of God. He is omniscient. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. The psalmist says that about himself. And if that's true of David, then it's true of me. And if it's true of me, it's true of you. And if it's true of you, it's true of us all. That God knows all things about us. Now, one of the things that's sometimes very helpful just in, in, trying, to, uh, in trying to get a feel for the kind of thing that some of us have known all our life, and what I am just saying to you, of course, to many of you, you've known from your childhood days. Uh, one of the things that sometimes helps us to, to catch the freshness of it is to put it in contrast. And so the first contrast that I want to put it in is in contrast with the pagan gods around David. The pagan gods of the Philistines and of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians. They had their gods. But their gods were not omniscient. Their gods were not all-knowing. They prayed to their gods in order to inform their gods. They had techniques where they could trick their god, where they could fool god, where they could lie to god, where they could deceive their god. And what David is saying in Psalm 139 is, our god is god. And he stands in stark contrast in this one particular dimension in terms of his knowledge, his char- the character of his knowledge and the scope of his knowledge. He stands in contrast with all of the other pagan gods around us. He's a God who knows. And he knows absolutely. He knows thoroughly. He knows perfectly. He is the omniscient God. The second contrast that probably will be more helpful for us is for us to think of his knowledge in contrast with our knowledge. And this is where we begin to sense our creatureliness as we stand before him as our God. Let me give you a half a dozen areas in which God's knowledge stands in stark contrast with our knowledge. For example, our knowledge is limited. There are things that we don't know. I don't know how many times I've had to respond to people who have asked me questions this week. I don't know. You can ask me questions about God that I simply don't know how to answer. You can ask me things about life, and I really don't know how they're to be dealt with. If you've raised children, how many times have you turned to your children and said, Honey, I'm sorry, I don't know. And that's the reality of human knowledge. There are lots of things that we just don't know. Our knowledge is limited. By the way, that's why it is a very dangerous thing 
for you to judge another person. That's one of the reasons why judgment is reserved for God. You don't know why people say things that they say. You don't know why people do some of the things they do. And because our knowledge is limited, we do not have the prerogative of passing final judgment on people and saying, I know why she said that, or I know why he did that. You don't know. Because we don't have that kind of knowledge, judgment is withdrawn from us, and it's reserved for God. God is the one who is my judge, not you. God is the one who's your judge, not me. And that's because our knowledge of each other is so limited. God's knowledge is infinite. There are no limitations to the knowledge of God. There's no area into which you could possibly move where God would have to shrug his shoulders, shake his head and say, I'm sorry, I don't know. While our knowledge is so limited, his is so infinite. Our knowledge comes from others. Everything I've learned, I've learned from other people. I've learned from books. I've learned from listening to preachers. I've learned from studying in school. I've learned from watching life. I've learned by making deductions and observations and conclusions. We learn from others. Not so with God. God's knowledge is what is called intuitive. And in Isaiah 40, verses 13 through 15, the uh, prophet Isaiah says, Who's taught, taught God anything? To whom has God ever turned for any information or knowledge? No one. Everything that God knows, he knows in and of himself. No one has ever instructed God about something that he did not know. God has never come to a knowledge of something by making certain deductions and conclusions. Everything God knows is in and of himself. It is intuitive knowledge, while ours is from others. The third contrast, our knowledge is gradual. We grow to know. You remember before you had children, how much you thought about, you knew about raising children? And after you had that first child, you learned a great deal about raising children. And after you had your third or fourth child, you wondered if you'd learned anything about raising children. You still learn. That's our knowledge. We're in the process of growing. This week we've been studying about God. And you've been studying about God all your life. But this week, as we've looked at the scriptures and as we've shared with each other, we've learned new things about God, new dimensions, new perspectives that we never knew before. We're learning new things about the holy life that are just part of the process of growing in our knowledge. And that's the Christian's experience. That's the human experience. Our knowledge comes bit by bit and piece by piece, and it comes gradually. Not so with God's knowledge. God's knowledge is instantaneous. That is, there was never a time that God did not know. He did not come to know as the result of accumulating knowledge. His knowledge was always there, instantaneously there, always entirely present with him. He never grew to know. It was always instantaneously present. Our knowledge is imperfect. I was sure that the Canadian team was going to win hockey game last night. I was wrong. God's knowledge is infallible. Isaiah 46, verse 10. God 
Everything that God knows is, is knowable, and everything that God says is going to happen does happen. God's knowledge is absolutely infallible. There are no areas of, of, of error or, or pockets of, uh, of misinformation involved in God's knowledge. Our knowledge is measurable. If you were to come to me and say, Bill, I'd like to pick your brain for a while this afternoon, I'd say, well, you could probably do that in 15 or 20 minutes. Everything I know, I could probably share with you in a brief period of time like that. At our college and seminary, we give tests, exams, and that's to measure knowledge. Our knowledge is measurable, not so with God's. Isaiah 40, verse 28 says that God's knowledge is inscrutable. That means you can't possibly plumb the depths of it. You can't possibly measure the scope of God's knowledge. It is inscrutable. It is unfathomable. It is beyond measurement. Our knowledge is changeable. Science textbooks change every three years in the educational world today. God's knowledge is not changeable. He is the immutable God, Malachi chapter 3 tells us. He is a God who changes not. His knowledge is not in a state of flux. He is immutable in the knowledge that he has as well. And when you start thinking of some of these characteristics of God's knowledge and put it against the backdrop of our knowledge, all of a sudden you begin to discover that God is someone who is far radically different from us than we ever imagined him to be. We are men. We are women. We are creatures. And in the area of knowledge, we are so limited. We're so imperfect. We're so human. But we have a God, friend, who's God. And he knows. He knows. He's a God who absolutely knows. Now, what are the implications of that in our life? How should that affect us as we live? Well, let me take our few closing moments to suggest three specific applications to having this kind of God. First of all, to have such a God as this, one who knows the way our God knows, is first of all a cause to tremble. Listen, friend, he knows. Your wife may not know, but he knows. Your customers at the office may not know, but he knows. Your family back home may not know, but he knows. And to have that kind of God is a cause to tremble, isn't it? I've never done it, but they tell me that if you go to France and, to vis- and you visit uh, where the Mona Lisa is on display, that they take you into the room where that uh, masterpiece hangs. And uh, they give you a, there's a tourist guide who gives you a guide of that particular uh, art uh, gallery and, uh, and museum. And when they take you into the room when the Mona Lisa is hang- where the Mona Lisa is hanging, they move you around from different spots in the room. And uh, after you've moved from here and moved from here and moved from here and over to here, you've made the observation that the guide then shares with you. And the observation is that uh, Leonardo da Vinci has painted that masterpiece in such a way that no matter where you are standing in the room, it appears as though she is looking 
directly at you. And after the guide makes that observation, she concludes with this statement. She sees all. She knows all. That's true of God. He sees all. He knows all. That has, friend, a tremendous ramification for us in our life, doesn't it? When Joseph was a young man, he experienced what I suspect would be the most flattering thing a young man could ever experience in his life. He received a proposition from a powerful, wealthy, beautiful, older woman. And the circumstances were absolutely ideal for him to respond to her proposition and to enjoy all of the fruits of it. But the thing that has so impressed you and me about Joseph was this. That Joseph determined that he could not sin against God. And you know how Joseph fled. Now my question to you this morning is, friend, why did Joseph not commit adultery in that situation? Here he is down in Egypt. He's been given all kinds of... uh, dirty deals and if anybody's got a reason to complain against God you would sure think it would be Joseph but here's this young man down in this country who is flattered in a way that would blow most young men right out of their saddles but Joseph persists in purity he resists the temptation he refuses to sin and my, my sense is, it is because Joseph has an appreciation of the fact that his God is God. He's not like the God out there in the pyramids. He's not like the gods out in the squares of, of, uh, of the cities of Egypt. His is a God who is God. And he knows and sees all that is transpiring. And it is that awareness that helps Joseph deal with the problem of sin in his life. Don't you think that's the explanation for Daniel? I mean, how do you explain how Daniel handled himself? He was a young man who was taken captive and moved over into the land of Babylon. And again, if any young man would have a reason to to be a little angry against God, surely would have been a young fellow like Daniel. If anyone had an occasion where they could sow a few wild oats and get away with it, surely would have been a young fellow like Daniel, away from family, away from home, away from country, way over there lost in the highest echelons of the social life of Babylon. Why not? I don't know how you explain it, except for the fact that Daniel had the consciousness that his God was God. His God was different from the gods of the Assyrians. The gods of the Assyrians had eyes, but they couldn't see. The gods of the Assyrians had heads, but they didn't know. And Daniel recognized that his God, the Lord God of Israel, was a God who knew. He had eyes and he could see. And he sees all things and he knows all things. And so Daniel over in that situation makes a simple decision. 
His decision is that he's not going to defile himself with the king's meat. He's not going to sin. He's going to commit himself to holiness and godliness. And I sense it's because he had a consciousness that God was a God who was God. And he was a God who saw. Let me suggest to you that the very first perception you ever had of God was this. Am I right? My guess is that that's true of most of us. Some of us can think back to the times when we were in in very, very young years, to our very first thoughts about God. And we can remember Mother saying, now don't do it, God will see you. And one of the very initial perceptions we had of God was that God's watching me. God sees me. And the fact of the matter is, most of us have known that for 40 or 50 or 70 or 80 years of our life. The great tragedy with that, of course, is that it becomes so commonplace. And my prayer for myself this morning, and it's surely my prayer for you, is that something that is so mundane, something that is so simple, something that is so common, will take on a whole new dimension and it'll be the kind of dimension that, make you, that will make you tremble in your shoes. I think that's what it means to fear God. It means to tremble at the thought of sinning in his presence. It means to tremble at the fear of displeasing him. It means to tremble in his presence when we think of, of violating his moral laws and sinning against him. That's the first practical implication of having a God who knows. Such a God is a cause to tremble. And um, that has a tremendous implication when it comes to sin in our life. To have such a God as this, a God who knows, is also a great cause for comfort, isn't it? And let me encourage your heart this morning, friend. God knows. God knows. And that really ought to be an encouragement to you. He really does know. Well, you say, Bill, what does he know? Well, why don't I mention a few of the things that he knows? And they're they're designed simply to strengthen our hands and to encourage our hearts. First of all, God knows your frame, says Psalm 103. He knows that you're dust. Now, what that simply means is that he knows, friend, that all you are is a man or a woman. He knows that about you. He knows that you're not a superhuman. He knows that you're not God. He knows you're a man. He understands that you're a woman. And frankly, that's very encouraging, isn't it? I suspect that the most devastating mistake that most of us make as parents in raising our children is that we overexpect from our chi- children. We've got a 14-year-old boy, and we expect him to be 21. You've got uh, an 18-year-old child, and you expect that 18-year-old child to have the wisdom of a 30-year-old, don't you? See, that's one of the great mistakes that we make. God never makes that mistake. He knows that you're a human. He understands that you're merely a man or a woman. 
He understands our frame. He understands that we are made of dust. And I am glad that he knows me and never overexpects because he realizes I'm a man. More than that, in 1 Corinthians 10.13, it says that he knows what we're able to bear. The Apostle Paul says that there is no testing that will ever cross the path of your life. There is no testing that's not common to men. And then he goes on and says that God will never allow us to be tested above what we're able. Frankly, friend, that's a great encouragement to me. There are some times I must confess that I think God puts me in water over my head. There are some times when I'm tempted to think that the load is much more than I can handle. And frankly, I cross paths with people and I find myself saying to myself, that's not fair. They've got far more than their share. How do you explain the load that God has put upon their shoulders? It's a great source of comfort for us to know that God will never allow you to be tested above what you're able. You know when you drive across some of those country roads and you come to some of those old-fashioned bridges? You know the sign that's just at this side of the bridge? It says load limit. Now that's likely not to test your weight, but it's likely to help you to be sure that you don't take a truck that's loaded with gravel and um, take it over a bridge that can only handle two, two tons. I'm so encouraged to know that God knows what my limit is. And he will never allow me to be tested above what I'm able. Now, if that's true, friend, test me out on this. If that's true, there is never a time in the life of a Christian where they can honestly and legitimately say, I can't take it. I can't handle this. A Christian can never say that honestly because God will never allow us to be tested above what we're able. He knows our limit. He knows the resources that are available to us. He knows our level of knowledge and our growth in the Christian life. He knows what we're able to bear and he will never allow us to be tested above what we're able. Isn't that a comfort to you? I tell you, that's encouraging. More than that, he tells us in the word of God, that he knows all about the future. And I find that encouraging. I find myself getting to the age of life where I'm a little insecure about the future. And I've got questions about the future now that I've never had in the first 50 years of my life. I'm wondering about this, and I'm wondering about that, and I've got lots of questions about the future. Isn't it encouraging to know that God knows your future? You see, our experience is that we're on the road of life, and when we're on the road of life, we can't see over the next hill, we can't see around the next corner, but God is up here. And the whole road of our life is laid out before God. He sees over the next hill, he sees around that next corner, he knows my future as though it's already been written in history. And that's a source of comfort. He knows the future. That's why it's so important for us to begin the day. He knows the day. 
for us to begin the day by putting our hands in his hand and say, Lord, just lead me through the day. Just guide me through the day. He knows the future. Isn't that good? Let me tell you another thing he knows. He knows every adversary that you have in life. We're going to be talking tonight about Satan and about Satan's devices in our life. He knows Satan. He knows Satan's tactics. He knows Satan's devices. He knows what Satan's strategy and plan is to wipe you out. Now, isn't that encouraging? To begin the day realizing that I'm entering into spiritual warfare against an enemy that is far, far stronger than me, but to be able to come to a God who knows that enemy, who knows his tactics, who knows his strategy, who knows how he's going to be after me today, and to be able to put my hand in his hand and say, Lord, lead me, guide me, protect me, help me as I move out onto the battlefield. He knows my enemy. He knows all about that enemy and all about his strategies in my life. See, that's tremendously encouraging. Let me tell you this, friend. He knows all about your sin. And that's encouraging. Right. That's very encouraging. There are going to be no skeletons pulled out of the closet at the judgment seat of Christ that's going to catch God by surprise. He knows all about your failures. He knows all about your sin. And he has guaranteed that if you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. And uh, there is never going to be anything that's going to be brought up at the judgment seat of Christ where God's going to say, I didn't know that about him. Well, maybe I better reconsider here now. Is heaven really an option? The adversary is never going to be able to bring something out of the skeleton. He knows all about it. And he says, if you're mine, you're mine. And there's no condemnation. That's marvelous to have that kind of God. And that's what the knowledge of God does for us. In one hand, it causes us to tremble. It ought to cause us to tremble. On the other hand, it ought to be a tremendous encouragement to us. God knows all about where we are. Let me conclude by quickly saying that to have this kind of God is a great encouragement to us to pray. Who would want to pray to a God for guidance if he didn't have the deep confidence that God knew? I wouldn't. Who would ever want to pray to God for for, um, victory over sin and for, for grace in life if he didn't have the sense that that God knew all about his life and knew what he needed? The encouragement to pray is that God knows. You see, we don't pray to God to inform. God knows everything about us. He knows all about those situations. And that's an encouragement to pray so that I come to a God who knows the future, who knows why this is happening, who knows how that's to be resolved. And to come to that kind of God, I come to him not to tell him, but to submit to him. To ask for his grace, to lay my life before him, and to make it available to him to fit into the counsel of his will and the plans that he has for us. I tell you, friend, it's a great encouragement to have a God who's God. He's not made of wood and stone. He's not some figment of imaginations. He's a God who knows. And when we have that kind of God, sometimes we'll tremble. Sometimes we'll be encouraged, comforted, and sometimes we'll pray because he's a God who really does know.
Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that those of us who need to be convicted and concerned and tremble will do that realizing that you know. Those of us that need to be encouraged and comforted in our hearts that will be comforted by the fact that you know and that all of us, Lord, will be encouraged more and more to be faithful and diligent in prayer because we've got a God to pray to who knows. Thank you for being that kind of God, and we love you for it and want to live our lives in the light of this. And thank you for that great privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message titled, A God Who is All-Knowing, that William McRae delivered at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1980. Dr. William McRae was a teacher, pastor, seminary professor, and president of what is now known as Tyndale University and Theological Seminary. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Join us next week as we bring you a bonus sixth message from William McRae titled, A God Who is an All-Present God. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.